Welcome to Chris Judd's Masters of the Market, a podcast giving everyday investors access to some of the best and brightest minds in the Australian investing landscape. Today's episode is brought to you by Think Markets, the trading platform where you can trade Forex, shares, CFDs, indices, and commodities. In today's episode, I catch up with Todd Barlow, the CEO of Washington Solpats. Washington Solpats is the second oldest listed company on the ASX, originally hitting the boards in 1903. They're long-term investors, and sitting there listening to Todd speak was an incredible educational experience for a young investor like myself. Hopefully you guys enjoy listening as much as I enjoy talking to Todd. Todd Barlow, thanks very much for joining uh, Masters of the Market. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time. That's my pleasure. So I thought we'd start with um, how you got into investing, what your early opportunities were in the market, and uh, who were your early mentors? Sure. I've always had an interest in economics and, uh, and business, and I always thought that I'd go into that sort of sphere. Um, the other interest I, ha- interest I had when I was young was sort of behavioural psychology and you know as a kid I'd wake up and early in the morning and watch open uh, university on the tv and I'd have psychology experiments and the, the thing that really fascinated me was uh, you know when the, the the mind plays tricks on people so whether that's uh, you know the placebo effect of of certain drugs or uh, optical illusions I was always interested in the way that um, people's brain worked and um, and I Liked, I had the idea that I'd like to bring those together at some point and, and so when I was at university I studied uh, business and I majored in management and I thought that at one point in time I'd, I'd be able to uh, exploit I guess or, or understand uh, how people behave and, and, and use that to, to run a business more efficiently. Um, but as it turned out I, I went into investment banking and uh, it was about 15 years ago uh, that I read a book by Michael Lewis, who's my favourite author, uh, called Moneyball. And I don't know whether you've read that, yeah. but it's you know, essentially using data analytics to overcome the human uh, failings in, 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 in that case, uh, in, in selecting a, a baseball team. Uh, and it became obvious to me that you could, you could overcome your, uh, your human failings and the, the failings in the mind to perhaps be a better investor. And, and so about that same time, I read a book, Freakonomics, which has become very famous. And, and so all of this was sort of really eye-opening to me at the time because um, i just joined uh, Washington 8 Sol Pattinson. And, and before I joined, I didn't know that they were really an investor who uh, had been exploiting... Uh, these principles that have been now made famous by Ben Graham and Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett about overcoming cognitive biases to, to invest in a better way. And, and perhaps it was unknown to them that that's what they were doing. But um, certainly the more I studied it and uh, the longer I've been here, it's become clear to me that um, you know, we've been utilising those techniques for many, many decades uh, and to really good effect. So you know, in terms of my my uh, my mentor in investing it's you know absolutely Rob Milner has been the biggest influence and uh, and working with him over the last 15 years I, you know I couldn't have asked for a better mentor um, you know I think the best advice that he's given me or I guess it's you know what he does in terms of demonstrating to me how to be a good investor is uh, that sort of sense of calmness and um, uh, lack of panic and, and and just making sensible and rational investment decisions. And I think if you do all of those things, 
you're 90% of the way there. You, you know, the, the stock selection is actually a, a minor part of it all. Yeah. So Rob Milner is obviously the chairman of, of Solpats for those listening. So in terms of um, that rational investing, it sort of seems like an arm wrestle between uh, data and the noise that's, that's public. And both those things have skyrocketed. The amount of data available to investors and the ability to analyse it quickly is... Uh, much more prevalent and easy to do than ever before mm. but also the media coverage and the, the noise surrounding any and all issues uh, has skyrocketed which one out of those two do you think is winning the arm wrestle at the minute well I, I think you can get too involved in the data and, and, and you know again if you're looking at um, uh, you know we always come back to some quotes of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger because they just speak such uh, you know, sensible and rational mm. thoughts. And you know, if you listen to Charlie, he says, we don't sit, sit around looking at spreadsheets all day. Mm. If you have a good idea, you instinctively know it. And, and when everybody agrees that it's the right approach, um, you know, we go forward. And so you can get bogged down in the spreadsheets, you can get bogged down in the data, uh, and you can certainly get bogged down in the, the day-to-day noise around what's going on in the short term. So we, we try to to separate all of those things. So when I talk about letting the data drive our decisions, it's it's about the long-term data. It's about it, it taking away that noise and and, uh, uh, and and investing based on the fundamentals rather than you know some stuff that you can see is clearly uh, either opinion or, or short-term in nature and, and, and uh, there's a real way to cut through. I think people who work or own an operating business understand maybe clearer than inexperienced investors in the stock market that financials don't always fit neatly into a quarterly or a half-yearly report. Um, yet in the investing markets, those half-yearly reports um, get sweated on so heavily. Mm. I think one of them, that's one of the mistakes that retail investors can sometimes make. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and that's particularly the case when you have businesses that are, where the theme is playing out over the longer term. Um, so, I mean, coal was a classic example. We've deployed a lot of money into coal in the last couple of years, uh, and there's, a, there's certainly some cyclicality to the, the, the pricing of, of coal. Um, but at the point where we made our um, uh, big investment into the Bengala coal mine in Hunter Valley, the, the coal price was at a, a level that was unsustainably low. Yeah. A, and you know, fundamentally, most mines were not making money at that point. Um, so we knew that there had to be some price correction. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people wanted to talk about the end of coal and what that meant for society and climate change and all of that sort of thing. But we looked at it and said, fundamentally, people are still consuming coal. They're still uh, by, uh, building uh, new coal-fired capacity. Uh, and the price will have to, have to come back because, uh, you know, it's just a supply and demand game. So that's the kind of data that we look at. And you, you got a fifty percent stake in New Hope, is that right? Yes. So being such a uh, such a substantial investor in such a cyclical business, there must be times in that cycle where you go, "Geez, I'd love to punch these out and and buy something else at the, at the bottom of the cycle." Or do you just see that's a time to reap some cash flow rewards and see it through till hopefully an eventual trade sale? Yeah, it, it's a difficult one because. Uh you know, we don't like cyclical businesses yeah. per se. Uh, you know, ideally we would have a business that is much uh, much more robust at every part of the cycle. But the way that we overcome that is to have uncorrelated assets yeah. that, uh, you know, while some are going down, others are going up. And, and 
some of that is is luck because you know we we don't know that the coal cycle is going to act uh, in a counter counteractive way yeah. to the economic cycle but the reality is by having a number of uncorrelated assets now whether that's building products uh, which are somewhat tied to the economic cycle uh, with telecommunications which are completely uh, you know it's a utility people subscribe to broadband and, and mobile um, uh, products irrespective of the of the market uh, and then coal acts in a completely different way so when we saw the the GFC uh, and, and some reduction in uh, you know, the economic cycle around 2009 um, you know coal was doing very well so over time the the lack of correlation has really helped us manage the portfolio and uh, and the cash flows and, and it hasn't been because they've all been steadily going up yeah um, but what we've been able to do through that technique of, of having uncorrelated assets is deliver to our shareholders increasing dividends every year for the last 20 years and you would instinctively think that a business that is uh, much more fundamentally sound like say an infrastructure style yeah. uh, business would be able to do that more easily than us but the reality is there's only two companies in the whole of the all, all ordinary index and there's about 500 companies in the all lords that's increased their dividend every year for uh, for 20 years and that's us and ramsey so uh it's a you know it's a remarkable achievement and the fact that we've been able to do that whilst holding some cyclical stocks is um is uh is a real feat but in general i'd say that most of our businesses are quite defensive and we are deliberately defensive in the way that we assemble our portfolio and the second oldest listed company in australia is that right yep that's Who's right the oldest? i think it might be a bank but it's probably not its current name is probably not okay. the, not the, the name that it listed under so okay. uh but your name hasn't changed we haven't changed Very and good. yeah 1903 was when we listed and so really concentrated portfolio by the sounds of things mm. uh, just how concentrated how many stocks are, are in it we have quite a large number of stocks but the concentration is at the top so if you look at the top three investments it's roughly 70 75 percent of okay. our portfolio um and you know we we often have this discussion around diversification and concentration and uh uh you know and, and there's some people who say back yourself and go really hard at what you know and, yeah. and, and put all your eggs in one basket uh there's some merit to that and there's some people who have done very well at, at that but to me that's more entrepreneurship than it is investing that yeah. that's backing yourself to um uh to succeed in one one sphere uh then there's the other people who say spread it around and 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 you know have a diversified portfolio and i think the the problem with that approach is uh firstly you've got to find investment a large number of investment ideas uh, and you need to be an expert in a lot of different fields yeah. and the other problem with that is you might have one that does very well but it doesn't really have a major impact on the overall portfolio so we're somewhere in between and we like the idea that uh, you know, you have a go at things that you know about, and you back those companies that you're invested in, and you support them. And if they're exhibiting some signs of growth, and and uh, you're really happy with the way they're going, you, you put more and more money to work in those areas. So all of our major investments actually started out as very small investments. Okay. Um, and you know, TPG as an example today is worth uh, something like one and a half billion dollars to us. But ten years ago, when we merged with TPG, uh, our SP Telemedia business, I think our stake was worth uh, you know, somewhere around $100 million. Yeah. So, um, so we've grown with those businesses over time. 
and um, uh, and certainly they've grown as part of our portfolio. But we don't worry so much about the concentration. And I guess the best articulation of of why I don't worry was uh, yeah came to me when I was reading Ray Dalio's Principles book, and and he um, he talks about. Uh, the holy grail of investing and, and for those who don't know ray dalio runs bridgewater associates and it's one of the he's a very successful uh, hedge fund manager and what he what he said about the holy grail was it's it's not about the number of investments that you have in any one class after about three or four it's sort of the the benefits of diversification are negligible what where you get real benefit is having uncorrelated assets mm. and, and even a small number of uncorrelated assets is much much better uh, in terms of uh, risk per unit, uh, return per unit of risk, than having a large number of of assets that perform roughly in the, in the same way. Of those three major holdings, TPG, New Hope, and Brickworks, Brickworks, you've got board representation on each of them. Yes. What sort of any of the smaller holdings do you push for board representation? Uh, to to limit, so we have board representation on. I would say between 20 and 30 investments. Yeah. And in our portfolio, we would have up to 100 investments. Uh, And some of them are very small and some of them are just a blue chip portfolio of of investments in banks and major miners and and things like that. Um, And they're very liquid. But of the illiquid ones uh, that are in our sort of strategic portfolio, a relatively high proportion of those we have some kind of board representation on. And so retail investors will often do a, a good amount of work on a business before they invest and then sort of let it sit there and then might have an event elsewhere in their life where they need to sell uh, or read something that uh, makes them nervous and, and then go to sell. Hmm. Um, do you want to talk us through, say, the investment process, not so much the initial investment, but the, the work done continuously throughout holding a, an investment? Well, firstly, I, I would say that um, we don't believe in short-term trading. We're not a trading yeah. a trader of, of our portfolio, um, and so you know it's easy to look back and say there's there's ways of making money when you just trade the volatility. So there's yeah. been points in any of our investments where the price has been very high, and there's been uh, points where it's been too low. And you know, had we have traded around that, we would have made a lot more money. But but even so, even if it's, you feel it's really overvalued, if you like the long-term story, you're, you're not a seller. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, everything's for sale at the yeah. right time and at the right price. Um, but you know, we've got a couple of issues. One is the lack of liquidity. Yeah. When you have a, a big shareholding, it's quite difficult to do that, uh, certainly without sending a message to the market around yeah. the value of your residual holding. Uh, the other issue that we have is our assets have all grown uh, from a very small number over time. So we've got tax um, friction on, on the sale of any of our major assets. So straight away... If we sell, we're, we're paying 30 cents yeah. or, or near to 30 cents of tax uh, in every dollar. So, um, so that makes it a little bit more difficult to trade. But, but fundamentally, you know, we just don't believe that we actually understand what drives short-term trading and volatility. Yeah. Uh, to us, that's just randomness. Uh, what, what we do know is how a story is going to play out over time, or at least we, we try to understand and think about how a story is going to play out over time. So, you know, I can't tell you how any of our investments are going to perform in the next week or month or yep. six months, but um, but we certainly have a view that uh, over time uh, these assets will perform well. And so is there more time spent 
on the overall macro thematic of it as, that a certain stock's exposed to rather than digging in on the, I mean, clearly digging into the individual financial of each stock is important as well. How would you say that that time's divided between your analysts on each company? Well, the, you know, I guess this comes to the heart of how we make our initial investment decisions yeah. and, uh, and the macro theme is very important to us. Um, you know, there's absolutely no point swimming against the tide. You can be working really hard, have some great quality management, but if you're swimming upstream when um, uh, you've got all these headwinds coming at you, it, it makes it very difficult. So the, the thematics are critical for us. So if we think about yeah. financial services, we're currently at 2.7 trillion and, and over the next 15 years, it's talking about you know being over 9 trillion of superannuation funds under management. So that, that's a sort of general theme that we yeah. look at and say that's quite interesting. Um, and then I think from, from there you, um, you need to then think about uh, whether the company that you're investing in is going to perform. It has the avenues for growth and the, the ways to, to, to win and the opportunities to exploit that, that thematic. Uh, and, and so the only time that we would revisit that theme or that investment uh, is if we've come to a view that the overriding uh, industry thematic has changed uh, or if there's been some event, it might be a regulatory event, or if we've lost faith in, in management and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that's historically been quite rare for us to, to do that because uh, you know it means that we got it wrong at the outset, firstly. Yeah. Um, it means that we are not in a position to make some changes, and, and generally we, we have been. Uh, and we've been lucky. I mean, even things like the environment for telecommunication services has been disrupted massively by the introduction of the NBN. But thankfully, we've been in a position where we've backed a good manager in David mm. Teo, uh, and we've been able to devise with him a strategy to enter into mobile and utilise the, um, uh, the network that he built uh, to roll out a mobile uh, uh, product. Uh, unfortunately, we got another regulatory headwind, mm. which was the banning of Huawei equipment. So we, we couldn't do that. And then we looked to merge with uh, Vodafone and then the ACCC's blocked that. So, you know, you can, you can withstand quite a few uh, your regulatory and, and external interventions, but, um, but it gets to a point where it, it does get quite challenging. And so you mentioned David Teo and management being so important. What are the, some of the things you look for in management when you go and uh, meet companies and think about making an initial investment? I think the, um, the thing that we have that's common amongst all of our managers is uh, you know, they're very genuine people. They care about what they do. They care about their people. Uh, and most importantly, they care about delivering returns for shareholders. They, they have a very strong view that they are custodians of shareholder wealth. Uh, and and so that means that you know, not only do they want to perform and generate returns, it means that every dollar they spend has to be very carefully spent. So we, we just don't see lots of waste. Um, we don't see lots of flippant decisions. Uh, we don't see decisions that are made to you know, for some kind of personal ground. So you know, this is not uh, an organisation or a group where people come to big note themselves. Um, you know, this is about... Uh, delivering returns for people and um, yeah we tend not to we tend to be a bit wary of 
salesmen or saleswomen yep. who are uh, you know a bit flashy and uh, you I have know. a rule never to invest in a CEO that wears a pocket square. You got any <laughs> you got any hard and fast rules like that? We don't have anything uh, anything like that, but. Um, but certainly, uh, there wouldn't be many pocket squares amongst our <laughs> management team. It has it has been a happy hunting ground for me in the past. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, look, I think it's a real genuineness and frankness, and um, you know, and the way that we interact with our management is is very open and honest as well. I mean, these are the people who we trust to make huge investment decisions, and. Uh, uh, and, and so we try to do the right thing by them, and they certainly have done the right thing by us. So track record and management, I assume, is really important to try and predict what they're going to do uh, in the future. How do you view management that's had a um, had a fail? Like obviously Twiggy's had Anaconda and gone on to huge things. In America, it seems like at least one failure is almost um, an expectation in Silicon Valley before you become investable. Mm. In Australia, it feels like once you have a failure, you're, you're almost fly blown. Mm. Um, how do you view that? Yeah, I think uh, Australia are um, uh, more reluctant to give people a, a second go, and, and I think it makes us more likely to back somebody who has been successful uh, in the past, and, and that can be a problem as well. I mean, sometimes people just get lucky, yeah, and um, uh, and, and sometimes you know just the the fact that you've been successful once is absolutely no indicator that you're going to be successful yeah. again. Uh, so you know, we need to be cautious of that. Um, you know, I think we're, we would be open to giving people uh, another chance if they had tried and failed for genuine reasons. I think we would be very reluctant to give somebody another go if they had failed because of something that they had done that was, in our mind, uh, because of a lack of integrity. Yeah. You know, I, I, we, we have a, a belief that, you know, an animal doesn't change its stripes. And, yeah. uh, and once you've had a hiccup in... In your personal integrity, I think uh, that would be enough for us yeah. to be out. And you're a holder in other funds. You got uh, you're a fund holder in Pengana. Is that right? Yep. Uh, are you an owner in that actual business, or are you own part of their fund? Yeah. Rarely do we invest in other people's funds. We tend to sort of want to manage it and yeah. control it ourselves. Um, with Pengana, we we are an investor in their international equities fund, and that's because we don't have international exposure yeah. ourselves. Um, but really our, our investment in Pangana is in the manager itself yeah. and, uh, and that came to us through an opportunistic trade that we did um, by purchasing both a share in Pangana and a, a share in Hunter Hall and, um, and seeing those companies merge. So we, um, we tend to look at that as an operating business rather gotcha. than a, a fund. And in terms of, we spoke about management of operating businesses, what about fund managers? Are there any similar traits you see across different fund managers? that um, seem to correlate with successful returns? Well, we, um, we don't think of ourselves in the same boat as a fund manager. Uh, I think the way that we organise ourselves here is probably closer to a private equity house yeah. than a, a fund manager. But, um, but certainly we have some exposure to we'll fund managers. Pangana, for instance. Yeah, yeah. But Pangana is a good example and, and there's lots of fund managers who in, invest in us and we yeah. see them. And, and so I guess my observations of the people who are successful managers uh, of, of other people's money uh, are that they tend to think a little bit differently. Yeah. And, um, and so we're trying to harness some of that uh, kind of thinking in our own office. And, um, uh, you know, if you think like everybody else, you'll perform like everybody yeah. else. So I think, you know, the, the people who have been really successful 
um, in my mind, are just a little bit different to the rest of us. Yeah. That's a good thing. And I guess because when you're making an investment, you're effectively saying that the price that the market's got is wrong. Absolutely. So yeah. you've got to have some level of contrarian nature in you to, um, to take that bet on. Yeah, and it's not just the contrarian thinking around the investment principle itself. It's the, the contrarian personality, if you like, that you're willing to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you, you're not, not everything that you're going to invest in in a contrarian way is going to be proved right, and you need to be willing to withstand the personal attention, I suppose, um, that comes from getting a call wrong. Whereas people feel safe about making a wrong call if everyone yeah. else was also wrong. <laughs> yeah, there's job security in failing the same way as everyone else. Absolutely. As opposed to failing differently, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and what about Ironbark? You're a shareholder in them. What's their business model? So Ironbark is a little bit different. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting to us uh, because it's in the financial services space. And as I mentioned before, it's a thematic that we see um, as being quite attractive uh, with, with just the, the long-term growth in superannuation funds. Uh, and, and Ironbark uh, plays in that, that space, I suppose, between the fund manager and the, uh, and the financial planners. And so our view is that there is a real uh, need for advice and, and uh, notwithstanding uh, you know, the, the growth in self-directed um, investors post-GFC, uh, notwithstanding the findings of the Royal Commission, uh, we think that uh, as people's super balances get larger, they will require good advice and they'll be happy to pay for that. And, and in fact, the, the cost of that advice will come down because the, the overall size of their portfolio is growing by so much. So uh, we believe in good financial planners being out there and, and we believe that they need to um, find avenues to invest in a very effective way for their, for their clients. And, uh, and that's exactly what Ironbark does and provides responsible entity services and man- uh, develops products for planners. Uh, and um, you know, we're quite excited about that. We see that as a, a platform for aggregating some of the... Um, uh, the businesses that are falling out of the, the majors or those businesses that are disrupting the market, we, we think that we could put them into Ironbark and, and make quite a considerable size business. Do you think there's an opportunity for the regulators to um, just make it easier for retail investors to participate in some of the opportunities that are currently reserved for wholesale or um, institutional grade investors? Yeah, I think there's there's been discussions about that for... A very long time I and mean, I think it was 2009 when all of the business uh, all of the Australian corporates were recapitalizing their balance sheet and there was the, the really big placements at juicy discounts and it was all going to the same mm. institutional wholesale funds and uh, and ever since then I think it's been on the radar that there's a an unfairness about it all um, that your know, retail shareholders are not getting those same opportunities especially as the sophistication offers is often just measured by wealth and not actual sophistication in in the knowledge base yeah yeah i think uh well uh, you know it's there's a bias towards the large managers who pay big brokerage trade often uh they're always going to get the call next week on the show we've got ed peter the man behind duxton asset management but every single time in my career i've heard this is a new norm com was a new norm. Mm. Nothing was there. It was always going to be clicks and it was always going to go up. Every time I've heard that, guess what? Reality's come back. Now, I can't tell you what will change our interest rate environment. can't tell you when. 
I can tell you, when I look at all the metrics and I look at the debt issuance right now and the quality of the bonds that are being issued, all we need is a tiny little nudge up in rates and a lot of things start folding and it becomes a vicious cycle as opposed to a virtuous cycle. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Uh, now, a lot of the people I've met with through this process, it seems to be an arm wrestle at the minute in how you view the world uh, and what opportunities the guys I've been speaking to have found attractive. Uh, some think we're in a, a deflationary environment a la Japan for the last 30 years where it's going to be really hard for rates to go up. Um, it's high... There's low unemployment, but there's high underemployment. Um, automation's coming, AI may sacrifice uh, lots of jobs. And then there's the other point of view that um, we've already had asset price inflation. There's full unemployment. Um, the globalisation experiment's failing at some level, and we may go back to regional sort of uh, centres for business, which could be inflationary. Um, where do you sit on, on that side of the argument? It's a tough one, uh, and I think you know. Firstly, we look at long-term interest rates. And yeah. If you, if you look at the ten-year bond rate today, it's about one and a half percent. I mean, that's extraordinarily yes. low. And, uh, and and that's that theme's been played out around the world. That you know everyone's experiencing very very low uh, long-term bond rates. So, <clears throat> uh, so I think you know, the the expectation is that we're probably going to encounter some difficult times ahead. And I think if you look at Australia, I mean, 28 years of continued economic yeah. growth is is, uh, is quite amazing and all good things must come to an end at some point. Uh, I mean, everyone's talking about the US going into its 11th year of expansion and that's a record in terms of their cycle. Um, but on the other hand, we're just not getting the price increases that we would yeah. generally expect from that level of uh, continued economic uh, expansion. So, uh, and do you put that down to globalisation or automation or both or something else? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's different things in different different areas. I mean, if you think about the US, they haven't been getting price increases, notwithstanding huge amounts of QE, and then the QE program came off, and they did the the massive fiscal stimulation yeah. with ta- tax cuts, um, you know, a uh, year or two ago. We've done nothing of that, of yeah. that sort. So in, in, in some respects, we've got a lot of dry powder. Um, and I think that the comforting thing from our perspective is we're still getting population growth. Yeah. So if you look at the, the Japan example, I think one of the, the key drivers in our mind about why uh, Japan was challenge, challenged in terms of uh, economic growth and, and, and price rises was the working population was shrinking. Yeah. And, um, Which we've got two now. Just not as starkly as what they've not as pronounced, but uh, and, and it's a challenge for us because you know in the I mean in the last twenty five years the other thing it's not just a matter of looking at the population growth um, it's it's also looking at labour participation as you said yeah. and and so women's participation in the workforce in Japan hasn't changed in twenty five years uh, whereas ours has grown quite considerably so you're getting more people so it's not just the births and immigration it's, yeah. it's more people participating and and that's probably really helped us um the problem for us is if we have stagnant migration i don't know what yeah. the future policies will be on on that uh and we are not getting that benefit of more women entering the workforce um then uh, i think that can really be a drag on on price increases 
Um, and then you've got to look at the savings rates. And, and the, you know, Japan was traditionally a very high rate of domestic saving, whereas uh, Australia's the opposite. No. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a little bit concerned that uh, you know, if people start deleveraging their household, yeah. um, particularly as you see house prices falling, one of the first things you would do is, is, is take away some of that household debt. Um, so that would be a problem. But as I said, on the other hand, we've got low interest rate environment, um, very strong commodity prices, uh, and lots of dry powder to be able to stimulate the economy if that's the way we want to go. You know, we've got a budget surplus uh, at the moment, so there's lots of fiscal stimulus opportunities. Um, our government debt is what, roughly about 40% of GDP, whereas Japan's about 250%. And what's the state? State's about 100%? About 100, yeah. So we've got, we've got real capacity to stimulate the economy if that's the way we want to go. And so the housing market sort of affects pretty much all domestic-facing uh, companies. Some of the overseas um, investors liken our housing market to the US housing market, just in terms of it being so overvalued and households so indebted, mm. their housing market pre-GFC, and try and extrapolate what might happen here. Do you think they underestimate the difference between non-recourse mortgages um, over there to over here and just that population growth that we do get from migration? Mm. I think they definitely underestimated it in GFC. Um, you know, I think the... Uh, when they compare the two markets, though, do you think they really understand the differences between the US and Australian housing market? Possibly. I mean, I, I, I'm consistently wrong on house prices in yeah. Australia. Like, I've, I've never understood how they could keep going up the way they have. Yes. Uh, there's some people who tell me the data suggests that the multiple of house prices to incomes is actually not that bad when considered against the rest of the world and other people tell me it's outrageously high. So I, I, don't, I don't really know what the fundamentals are that yeah. drives house prices, but uh, it does seem fundamentally that the continued growth in that asset class, uh, and, and you know, bearing in mind that people are leveraged into this, so if you, if yeah. you think about your actual return on yeah. investment into residential houses over the last 20, 30 years has been absolutely extraordinary. And, uh, and to me, it's a non-producing asset class. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just don't know how much yeah. you can, can continue to do that. Whereas the, the stock market should go up. The yeah. stock market should go up because of population growth and inflation. And that straight away, that's giving you, you know, 3 or 4% fundamental growth yeah. um, to start with. Whereas there's nothing that really drives that, that growth in, in residential properties. Changing gears a bit, we spoke about Brickworks before, and uh, it's an interesting dynamic, the cross-shareholding between you guys and Brickworks. Mm. Do you want to just explain um, to the listeners how that came about, um, how it affects you today? It came about a long time ago. It was, uh, it was, it was done by way of a, swear, a share swap in, uh, I think, 1968 or 69, and, um, and it was partly because... Uh, the, the the two founders or the two uh, CEOs of those companies at the time liked each other's investment or they liked each other's businesses, but it was also partly to shield each other from uh, market raiders. And there was a there was a bit of a tendency at the time for people to come in and um, take over companies and sort of wind them up for their assets. And uh, and they wanted to avoid that, and so they they swapped their shares. and And what that did was not just protect themselves from takeovers, but it gave each company the uh, 
a supportive shareholder, which enabled them to get on with business and, and, and really avoid short term. So even though they didn't quite perhaps put it in these words at yeah. the time, what they were actually trying to avoid was short term thinking. And, um, and so the, the benefit of that over the next uh, you know, 40 odd years or 50 years um, has been extraordinary because we both companies were able to become long-term thinkers in terms of the way that they invested. So for our ca- in our case, that was about long-term investments in a variety of equities. And in Brickworks' case, it was about long-term investments in terms of uh, improving their brickwork plants at the bottom of the cycle. So most people don't have the money to be able to yeah. invest in their plant when the, the cycle is low because they're trying to uh, save every dollar that they can. Whereas our view was that's exactly the time, mm. you know, when you've got capacity and you can take things offline, uh, that's a great time to, to invest. So uh, those sorts of things. And, and, and then, of course, when the, the cycle turns, you've got the most efficient factory, yeah. the lowest cost factory and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we also were able to land bank uh, huge amounts of, of land, which today has become extremely valuable because it's now uh, industrial property hubs. And, and somebody who was taking a much shorter term uh, view would have sold that land yeah. long ago to somebody for farmland and you know cents in the dollar. So it's really worked for um, for both companies. And um, uh, you know I know that in in Sol's case, I think that the the, the longest data that we can aggregate is um, is about forty years, so sometime in the early seventies. Um, but the average annual rate of return. Uh, for an investment in souls is somewhere around 17%, wow. 16 17%. So, so the, uh, the share swipe in my mind was extremely effective. And then, um, and then if we fast forward to a few years ago when I guess we got a lot of press around Perpetual's agitation of the existence yeah. of the cross-shareholding, I think their, their concern really stemmed from the fact that our shares were not trading at our true value. And their conclusion on that was that um, the cross-shareholding was, was holding us back. Uh, and, and, and my view was that what was holding us back was perhaps the market didn't understand us as well as they, they, they could have, and, yeah. and that was our fault. We, we sort of had a tendency to fly under the radar and not really disclose too much about our business, and we just wanted to get on with, with making money. Um, so I put in place a, a strategy to get out to the market and articulate exactly how, I mean, you know, you can see our yeah. presentations today. Uh, we have a valuation on one page, a one slide valuation that says all of our investments are in the market. Yeah. We can tell you what we're worth. And, uh, and, and, and the effect of that was very positive. So we, we not only educated the market about how to value us, we attracted a lot of people who perhaps didn't know about it. Yeah. So we, we went from around 8,000 shareholders uh, four years ago uh, to about 19,000 shareholders today. Uh, and uh, and we, the, the stock re-rated from you know, roughly a 25% discount to the value of the portfolio and, yeah. and, and now we're trading in line with it. So, so do you view that as a positive experience in the end going through that perpetual case? I'm sure it must have felt like a bit of a, a pain in the ass at the time. Yeah. Oh, it, it definitely had a positive outcome. Uh, I mean, I think, I think I would have done that anyway. I was just yeah. coming into the job, and, and that was my ambition was to uh, to do a lot of those things. But um, but uh, you know, I think it got us a little bit of press. Um, some people say all publicity is good publicity, yeah. but uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, but yeah, overall it was positive. And, and actually, Perpetual then decided to sell down our stock when, once they lost the case. And that gave us a bit more liquidity and yeah. interest in the stock and enabled um, you know, us to attract more institutions and retail shareholders. So it was a great outcome in the end. And, uh, and, and ever since then, we've never had one negative issue raised about the cross shareholding and and i think you know a lot of people look at us and say we envy your structure and and your ability to invest in anything um and your long-term view and 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 so you know we're uh, we're actually highly regarded in terms of our structure rather than the opposite so that must be a fine line at times and you may you guys may come across this when you're uh, a shareholder in a company and potentially an uh, activist shareholder there must be a fine line between trying to uh, influence the company or just selling the shares. Um, I guess if you don't like what the company's doing, mm. you really, your main option is to sell the shares, I would have thought. How do you balance that out when you come across that uh, with companies you've invested in? Well, I think it depends on how much you own of the company. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's a bit rich for somebody who owns 1% or 2% to be trying to call the shots. Yeah. Uh, but there have certainly been examples where we own... 40, 50, 60% of a company, yep. and I think we've earned that right to call the shots. Yep. And um, uh, But we would reluctantly do that. We, we as I said, we back management. It would be a sign, we, I guess, we want that you didn't rate the management in a sense if you were over Yeah, and it. I think in that case, you would politely and behind the scenes go about a process where you might... Uh, you go through a, a management transition process. It wouldn't be a public stoush because uh, I just don't think it's really that helpful. And yeah. um, so you know, it wouldn't be our style to do it in the, in, in the public domain. Um, you know, there's definitely been times where we've made our opinions known to people, and they can take that for what it's worth. Yeah. And if we don't like what we we see, and and we've got a small enough shareholding, we we will just sell out. Yeah. And so you mentioned macrothematics playing a big part of the process here. What are some of the macro trends that you think are really exciting at the minute? Uh, you know, I don't think we've got any special insights that anybody else yeah. doesn't have. Um, I mean, I mentioned the financial services. That's something that's really interesting to us, not just because of the macro theme around the uh, increasing superannuation, but also the disruption caused by the Royal Commission, I suppose. Um, you know, we're interested in... Uh, some defensive assets so one of the things that has been a, a, a kind of a unique investment for us is swim schools so yeah. our view is that people will teach their kids to swim no matter what happens uh, and we kind of like that as a as a defensive asset class and a bit of a property play and um, so we're quite interested in, in that I think people's uh, propensity to spend on their kids is showing no limitations yeah. and <laughs> and I look at uh, I look at my daughter at the moment and I, I say to her her average day was the best day of my year yeah <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't see that trend reversing <laughs> um, yeah then I think there's the, the, the you know we're obviously very interested in the energy story being yeah. big investors in coal there, there will be a transition that will take place over time and we're already seeing growth in renewables and uh, then there's the whole electric vehicles and things like that. So the way that we've tackled that is we're we're interested in investing in copper. We've got a copper investment. Yeah. We've got a, a graphite investment. Uh, we've got a, a any uh, cobalt? No cobalt yet. No. You're not going over the Congo and put your foot on some assets <laughs> over there. So, mate, we'd have a look, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'd do the site visit. <laughs> but um, 
But then we, we what about nickel in the EV um, thematic? Yeah, if we came across the right opportunity, we, we would look at all of those things. And yeah. I think uh, you know, you look at what West Farmers is doing. They've yeah. obviously made a very deliberate play for battery um, uh, minerals, but. Uh, to us, it's more about m- more than just batteries. You know, the decentralisation of the grid, the um, the need to install more gas capacity to deal with the peak uh, the, the, the the peak necessities of the grid when renewables when the wind's not blowing or the sun's yeah. not shining, and uh, so there'll be a, and the decentralisation of the grid. So there'll be a change that will take place over the next you know twenty years, and it will be significant uh, infrastructure spend. And so we're just trying to think about ways that we can exploit that and we've got one investment that is um, uh, services that sort of energy um, decentralization story and uh, amp control uh, so there's you know they're the kind of things that we we think about and copper's just about involved in any of the changes coming to either the, either the grid or the transportation market and, and renewables a pivotal role in in all of it doesn't it yeah absolutely and that's why we really like it plus overlaying on pure play copper exposure though in the aussie market no, that's true. We're trying to build build one up, and and we think that there's a real place for that in the Aussie market. Um, you know, it's another example where the copper price was falling, and yet all the data was telling you that the demand was going to exceed supply by a significant margin in it's time. Still reasonably low, don't you think? Yeah, like yeah, for what seems to be coming. Um, I want to finish off with three questions that I've asked most of the guests. Some of them have been reluctant to answer, uh, and I understand you're not a futurist. But if you give it a go, I'd be very impressed. So in the year 2030, my son will be 18. Yep. Will he ever drive his own car or will they be autonomous by then? I think uh, I'm a bit believer in autonomous cars. I think 2030 is really not that far away. Uh, and I'd be surprised if we could adjust that quickly. Yeah. Uh, I think electric vehicles will be the first wave, yeah. and I think autonomous will come at some point later. But uh, I'd, I'd be closer to twenty forty than twenty thirty is my, yep. my, my guess. Very good. Uh, now, best estimates in the year two thousand and thirty, will the US dollar still be the reserve currency of the world? That's a good question. Uh, I'd like to think so. Um, but it's getting harder and harder to see uh, how that might be the case. But I, uh, you know, the, the the alternatives don't look good. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. But I, I hope so. Very good. And in the year two thousand thirty, will uh, artificial intelligence have smashed the jobs market, or will the jobs just have evolved, a la how they did when uh, the IT revolution came about? Yeah, I think it's just an evolution. I don't fear that kind of change. Really? And, and I think that, um, uh, you know, there will always be a, a place for for human intervention uh, and it will create other jobs in other areas. And, and I think if you just look at any kind of technological disruption over time, um, it, it's generally been a positive for jobs growth uh, than anything else. So, uh, you know, there might be some industries that are drastically affected by automation but it tends to open up other opportunities elsewhere so i'm, I'm really opportunist uh, really optimistic about um uh, the ability for humans to evolve and and for the economy to to push on and create jobs uh you know, e- even when we get 
these sort of disruptive events. Todd, loved it. Loved sitting here and listening and learning off you. Really appreciate it again for, for giving me your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Cheers. Done. Thanks so much to Todd Barlow for joining me on the show. My key takeaways were the importance of non-correlated assets and the role they play in Soulpatch's portfolio, plus the fact that the best fund managers think a little bit different to everyone else. Next week, we've got Ed Peter from Duxton Asset Management. Once again, I'd like to thank the support given to us for this podcast by Think Markets. If you want more information, head to thinkmarkets.com or download their Think Trader app if you're looking to trade in currencies, commodities, indices, stocks, or CFDs. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from.